This episode of Full Stack Radio is brought to you by Hired. If you're a developer, designer, or product manager who's looking for a new opportunity, head over to Hired's website and create a profile to start receiving offers from companies who need what you do. If you accept a job through Hired, you'll receive a $2,000 signing bonus, and if you sign up through Hired.com slash Full Stack Radio, they'll double that signing bonus to 4000 bucks. So thanks again to Hired for sponsoring the podcast. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio podcast where I talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration. I'm Adam Wathen as always and today I'm honored to be speaking with one of the most influential programmers of my programming career, uh, Kent Beck. How's it going Kent? Very well today, thank you. Awesome. So, I mean, there's a million things I want to talk to you about but maybe the first thing is I recently picked up a copy of Small Talk Best Practice Patterns, uh, which, is that the first book that you wrote? That is the first book I wrote. Yeah, and it's been a really, really interesting read for me because most of my uh, professional programming career has been working in languages like Java or C Sharp or PHP, kind of that C-ish looking (laughs) world of programming languages. (laughs) So it's been a really interesting challenge to dissect even just the syntax of all the examples and stuff in the Smalltalk book and think about how to apply those to the way that I'm uh, writing code today. And Smalltalk seems like just such a fascinating language to me, like the fact that there's no like conditional keywords or anything. Everything is an object. Everything is a message. And it's, it's sparked a lot of really interesting thoughts in my head about what object-oriented programming really is and uh, how it's different in different environments. And I thought that would be an interesting thing to get your opinion on, because I know, you know, obviously you did a lot of small talk work back in the day. And uh, from what I understand, kind of was part of pioneering that as a, a platform for you know professional software applications. But uh, a lot of your later work uses Java examples and stuff like that as well. So I don't know. Do you miss working in Smalltalk versus uh, working in programming languages like Java? Or I think you write a lot of PHP at Facebook. Is that correct? I wouldn't say a lot, but I certainly write PHP some every week. And uh, uh, I also encounter JavaScript and C++ and, and Java. Those are the four big languages for Facebook's code base. Um, yes, I definitely miss it. And the thing, there's a, at least a couple of things. One is, I still know that environment really well. And there's something about an environment where you really feel a sense of mastery that, uh, that just it feels better, I'm more confident, I'm more creative, I'm less likely to get hung up in that environment. Um, so there's a psychological effect to just working in an environment that you know really well. But the, there's also uh, the, the solution space in Smalltalk is so enormous compared to most other environments just because it's a self-hosting environment. So if you, if you want access to a, a syntax tree, you know, you got some, you want to do some syntax tree transformation of course, it's right there. It's not some special library or you have to write your own parser or whatever. Of course, you've got access to that. So when I'm coding in Smalltalk, my brain is bigger because I have more different things that I can do at different times. I can do things at compile time. I can do things at runtime. I can do you know, reflection at runtime. I just... There's just a million gajillion tricks in Smalltalk that aren't accessible in most languages. So I really like that feeling. 
That's really interesting. Um, one of the things that I've been most interested in is the idea of sending messages in Smalltalk versus what I'm thinking more of as you know calling methods or calling functions in uh, a language like Java. Do you uh, make much of that distinction, and what does that mean to you? Well, I think the difference between uh, polymorphic invocation and, and non-polymorphic invocation is that's the that's the distinction with some substance. I think in Java you talk about calling a function even if it is polymorphic as a that was a marketing position, so that somebody who was in C would look at it and say, "Oh, well, I know about calling functions." So, like, there's a there's a piece of it. Do you have polymorphism? I I, I was thinking about this today. Poly- polymorphism is this is this shield that you sling on your shoulder when you need to fend off the the arrows of coupling. <laughs> and um, and there actually seems to be kind of a backlash against that, which I'm a little bit I don't know confused by. I don't I don't understand that. Oh, this object stuff that was just a that was just a fad. Polymorphism lets you get rid of certain kinds of coupling in very convenient ways, and functional programming lets you get rid of other kinds of coupling, and it depends on what kind of coupling you have, which one you'd really like to hold on to, and eventually, I got to a place where I combined the two, where I have immutable objects for a lot of my computation, but the kind of the core is the classic immutable objects holding on to these immutable objects, and that seems to work pretty well for me. So I don't understand the, the need for this, uh, oh, objects, uh, they're terrible, and you know, thank goodness that fad is over. <laughs> like, well, no, not really, because they're still coupling. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the distinction that has been interesting to me that I've been kind of thinking about a lot lately, the main difference to me is in a language like Smalltalk or even in a language like Ruby or, or other dynamically typed languages, when you send a message to an object, the onus of determining if it can respond to that message or how to respond to that message is is placed more on the receiving object than it is when you think about calling a function, does that make sense? So even the the concept of like method missing in Ruby, right, where you send a message to an object, and now it's the object's responsibility to decide, uh, do I have a function or a method that I can just respond with? Or maybe I want to pass this off to someone else, or maybe I want to dynamically handle it in, in some different way. Whereas in um, a statically typed language, that opportunity isn't there. And that's been like an important mental shift for me in thinking about, you know, what should be responsible for what. Is that something that has ever seemed of any significance or importance to you? Well, you can still pass multiple concrete types. You, you can still send a message to one of several concrete types in Java. So, so you still have this runtime case statement still still takes place on every function invocation. Uh, Java tries to avoid some errors at a fairly substantial cost, and to my way of thinking. Um, but the runtime data structures are the same. You still have jump tables. You still have, you know, you, you look at the type of the actual type of the thing that you're invoking the function on, and then you're going to go to different sequences of instructions based on the concrete type. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. I guess it's just interesting to me to think of, um, I, I think the part of it that was interesting to me is this, the idea that 
in a language like Smalltalk, right, to to write code the way you need to write it in Smalltalk, you could never have type annotations or anything that, uh, you know, when I'm defining a method saying, you know, this needs to take a, a string and it needs to take a user and it needs to take uh, something else because of the way that the receiving object is responsible for deciding if it's compatible with the message being sent, you can't put that information in the calling object. Does that make sense? Sure. I mean, and, and even in the receiving object that it, it doesn't take a string and a user, it takes something that knows how to respond to the same messages that a string responds to. And it knows, and it takes an object that knows how to respond to the same messages that a user responds to. And it takes uh, an object that knows how to respond to the same messages that uh, an integer knows how to respond to. So you, you can't nail it down to concrete types in Smalltalk until runtime. Yeah. So so how do you compare uh, the concept of like explicit interfaces in a language like Java to duck typing in Smalltalk or Ruby or, or any other uh, dynamic language? Well, they're still there, right? Implicitly. So when I when I say this function takes a user, what I really mean is uh, this function takes an object uh, that responds to first name and last name and uh, address or and and ID, something like that. That's all I'm really saying. So there's an implicit interface there. The question is how how much leverage do you get from reifying that interface? Turning it into something concrete and being able to reason about that and manipulate that thing and pass it around and have people read that without having to read the, the details of the implementation. And Java and Smalltalk have, have different opinions about that. As a programmer, you still have to figure interfaces out in Smalltalk because you think, you're thinking, oh, well, I, I want to pass, uh, I have this uh, uh, unregistered user, which which has a name and a address and an ID, you know, which actually doesn't return a number, it returns, uh, you know, some unknown ID or something like that. So I have to figure out what the interface is before I can pass that thing in. Turns out that for certain communities of programmers, and certain sizes of projects and certain durations of projects, uh, leaving the interfaces implicit is uh, not that expensive, and the benefits are fairly, fairly substantial of not doing that. On a different team with different programmers or different size team, that's just suicide people will take advantage of that. They'll, they'll violate the spirit of the interface. You'll have a huge mess, and it's better to lock that stuff down. But it really depends on context and who you're, who you're working with. I regularly work with a code base that's a small talk code base that's it's a 15, 16 years old, has 10 million lines of code, worked on by 20 or 30 people, and we don't we don't get confused. You don't miss interfaces. We don't get confused about stuff. But it's because everybody knows everybody else's style so well. So it, it's interesting that you talk about like 
Um, like I was kind of asking the question to kind of figure out what side of the fence you sit on and your answer is very pragmatic and nuanced, right? That it's like, there's not really a side of the fence. It's each one has different advantages depending on different situations. And you would, you know, use the right tool for the job, I guess, sort of thing. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. One foot on each side of the fence, which can be a pretty uncomfortable position. (laughs) Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about kind of related to that book, which hopefully will take us in a direction of a lot of other interesting things, is um, most of your your writing and stuff f- focuses a lot on uh, helping people make low-level design decisions. You know what I mean? Like as far as it's, it's like keyword for keyword, like what order should these arguments be in? What should this be named? Like uh, looking at things kind of under the microscope. And I haven't read a lot from you as far as uh, higher level architectural decisions and stuff like that. Is there a reason for that? I guess because I don't really see the difference. For me, you've got elements and you have relationships between elements, and those relationships confer some benefits. And whether the elements are two expressions in a statement, or uh, two services in uh, uh, some distributed architecture, the principles are the same. You know, that human, the software development is still a social process. Change in small steps is always safer than change in big steps, except when occasionally it isn't. That you should always be prepared to shift responsibility from one element to another. That's one of your that's one of your possibilities. And it doesn't matter whether whether you're talking about extracting out a an expression with a, a, a in and assigning it to a temporary variable and using the temporary variable. Or you're thinking about, well, where does this parsing go in the caller or the receiver service? The the style of thinking to me, it's 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 all the same. So after my daughter, my oldest daughter's a professional programmer, and after she'd been a programmer for a while, she came to me and said, "Dad, see, people talk about well, there's architecture and there's design, and then there's you know coding, but it's all really the same thing, isn't it?" And I just, that's that's my girl. (laughs) I was so happy because it it seems seems like the same kind of stuff to me. Um, The thing about talking about detailed decisions is it is much easier to discuss. The trade-offs are easier to see. Yeah, yes, thank you. That's the word I was searching for. And so I, I like talking about those kinds of things, but my thinking has, you know, I, I've talked a lot about team dynamics and, uh, and, you know, methodology kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't see myself as, uh, I don't need to stand up on the architecture bandwagon and say, oh, microservices are the thing, because some places they aren't. You know, Smalltalk has a very good reason for not having microservices, and you know, it's a little bit embarrassing to <laughs> to to be the that person at the party over in the corner going, yeah, maybe not. Um, so I I try to avoid that, but uh, it's uh, uh, I, I like it. You know, I think the design patterns guys nailed their topic pretty well. I disagree with with some of the patterns they came up with. You know, singletons just global variables. 
vaguely disguised and but the careful that when i started writing there wasn't to my mind a careful thinking about coding and how those decisions roll up to have big effects so that's why i started there that's something that has become more and more important to me lately um for the same sort of reasons you're talking about right like it's almost like design is like this fractal thing where it looks the same at like any level of the microscope it's just different things you know mm-hmm. what i mean and yeah. uh I've, I've i've worked on projects where people have tried to implement kind of higher level architectural ideas but without a fundamental grasp of how to make the really small pieces really great you know what i mean and and get those really low level design decisions correct and no matter what you try to do at that the the higher level of abstraction uh, it it doesn't work out and it's still a mess if you're not building it on top of really well designed low level interactions you know and that's comes down to just things like uh, what arguments should this take or should this responsibility be in this little object or this little object and and that's why uh, going through that small talk book um, has been uh, really, really interesting to me because it talks about all these uh, really low-level concrete decisions that you can make and reasons for, for making them. And it's been really cool. Well, I'm glad you found it helpful. So kind of related to the architecture stuff again, some of the biggest messes that I've seen have come up when people have tried to design for requirements that don't necessarily exist yet, like trying to handle all sorts of what ifs and situations that might come up and trying to build abstractions that support all these different things that haven't actually come down the pipeline yet or may never come down the pipeline yet. Uh, I know you've talked a lot about stuff like emergent design in the past. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that a little bit more. Well, here's the experiment that I did. Um, Early on, I was uh, very proud of my ability to predict future change. So proud that I didn't notice that I wasn't good at predicting future change. And then I kind of had an epiphany. Oh, you know, I think it was some change finally happened two years after I thought it would happen. And I'd had to carry the burden of supporting that change for the entire two years. And I realized, oh, so one of my thinking habits is to turn things backwards. So instead of trying to predict in more and more detail for more and more time, I thought, well, what if I deliberately stopped predicting the future and I limited my design horizon to six months? So if I could say, well, this kind of change is going to happen, but it'll be six months from now, I'm just going to ignore it. And things went better for me. So I thought, well, okay, how about three months? And things went better for me. I was less over-engineering. I was making progress sooner. I was less anxious, you know, back to the the psychological effects. Uh, Things were were cleaner, easier to understand, and so on. So I just kept – I never reached a limit of that series of experiments. Now, I'm not claiming any kind of universality for that experiment, but I think if you want to understand the trade-off – the cost of speculative design that performing that experiment will teach you valuable lessons. Now, there are, there are things, like at Facebook, you got to start a data center three years, four years before you need it. 
there's just no getting around it. So you're going to have to make three, four-year projections about, about traffic. Now, what actually ends up going into that data center on the day you flip the switch might look very different than what you thought was going to go into the data center. But, but you know, all that physical structure, there's just no getting around having to have a, a horizon that matches the speed of change of the material work you're working in. So if it's a gigantic DC, you know, big as multiple football fields, the horizon, you know, physics, physics and customs laws and all kinds, you wouldn't believe what it takes to, to bring up a data center. It's an unbelievable project. So yeah, you're going to have to plan that kind of stuff out further, but software, most of the time, really, it's, it's not that bad. I started a conversation yesterday about this. People complain about internally, well, I think everybody, oh, you know, this code is so ugly and it's so hard to change and blah, 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 and it could be so much better, and whatever. And I said, well, here's the analogy. Back in the day, options traders, the prices of options, if you looked at what kind of price movements the, the prices of options predicted, large, really large price movements were more, much more likely than what the the models of price movements would predict. And at some point, people said, well, maybe that's because our model of price movements is wrong. It's not that the options traders are wrong, because all the wrong options traders were out of business. And I wonder about the same thing in software. So you've, you've got some software, and some of it's you know shiny and new, and some of it's ugly and old, and whatever, you know, we all have the simplistic model of quality in our heads. Everything would be easy to read and beautifully documented and blah, blah, blah. And if you look over and over again and you see software doesn't look like that, maybe the problem isn't with the software. Maybe the problem is with the model quality in your head and what really needs, you really need to take a step back and go, well, what model of quality would predict software that looks exactly like this? That's a pretty interesting uh, way to look at it. Do you have any more thoughts on that? Like, have you have you explored that idea any further? No, no. This was yesterday. So I just I just posed the question. I don't know what such a, a theory or what what such a model of software quality would look like. But you know, in physics, if you if you have a, a an equation and you have some experimental data and the data doesn't match the equation, you're going to change the equation. But somehow in, in, in software, we think, oh, well, everything should be clean and tidy and perfectly packaged and documented and blah, 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 blah. That's our equation. And you go and you make the observations like, nope, software doesn't look like that. At some point, maybe you might want to consider changing the, the model of what quality means. Yeah, for sure. Uh, something that I just thought of that's kind of interesting related to you know, we're talking about uh, speculative design and trying to accommodate uh, future change. Do you think there's a tension between the idea in an agile software development process where you want to be prepared to react to changes in requirements versus trying to design to accommodate that change? Like, are those at odds with each other? Are those the same thing? You know what I mean? Sure, sure. I think it's easy to look at it as a as a contradiction 
another thinking habit of mine is, as I always ask, compared to what? So let's say, let's say I'm t- taking this uh, emergent design position and uh, I get to a, a requirement that I'm really not very well prepared to handle and I have to do quite a bit of retrofitting or I have to do a bunch of shimming or you know, build some scaffolding and uh, that next requirement is, is kind of ugly the way it goes in. Well, and you might say, well, the problem is this emergent design stuff. Well, but what's your alternative? What's, what's, what's the other way of designing that would have avoided being designed into a corner? Speculating about stuff and then having different stuff happen because that's what happens yeah, to me. Yeah, you would have had, had to speculate and land and guess correctly, right? And land on that requirement that came in in order for that to end up being easy. Right, and and when that happens is glorious, but it doesn't just doesn't happen that often. So you would say overall the cost of keeping things, you know, as tailored for the specific situation that you're trying to solve as possible, and then uh, modifying your design to accommodate requirements as they come in is is the cost of that is lower than trying to plan any of that stuff up front. Yeah, and then carrying along the burden of all this excess design having to rip it out when you discover that it's getting in your way. But, but there's another part of that process, I think, that people miss. So, so let's say I add a requirement and it's kind of ugly and I have to, I had nice, beautiful layers and now I have to, I have to violate my layers in order to get my next feature in. Well, but I'm not done yet. I'm going to add another requirement and if it requires the, the, the same kind of violation of layers, I'm going to start readjusting where the layers are. And then the next one comes in, I'm going to do a little bit more adjustment. And after four or five of those, the design's going to be really well tailored for the kinds of changes that I'm actually making. So, so, so by the time it's a year later, I'll have the design. If, I, if I'd happened to predict what I needed correctly, I would have come up with that design. And a year later, that's the design I have more or less. Yeah, I've I've run into situations before where even when I did know about the requirements that were coming in in the future, um, because I'm working on you know the current requirements and the other requirements are maybe ten cards down in the backlog or whatever. Even though I know about them and I think I'm designing to accommodate them, I still don't end up accommodating them because I still don't know enough about it until I actually start writing code trying to implement the requirement. You know what I mean? Sure, the speculation only works if you don't learn anything. Because if you do learn something, you know, in, in those intervening 10 cards, you're going to know better how to design for that 10th card when you get to the 10th card than you did at the first one. Yeah, for sure. So kind of related to that, but switching gears a little bit. I'm sure you probably read the blog post that Dave Thomas put out last year, like the Agile is Dead blog post. Yes. What is your opinion on, I don't know what to what to call it, but like, I feel like agile software development to me that's the only way to build software successfully right like it the guiding principles are make total sense and I I can't think how you could do it a different way and uh be able to accommodate the realities of changing requirements and stuff like that but over time it's almost turned into like a product like I almost feel like people have stolen the word away from us <laughs> you know what I mean and I feel like mm-hmm. that's kind of what Dave uh was talking about there do you have an opinion on that? Like, I guess, what does being an agile team really mean to you? Does it mean using a pivotal tracker? Does it mean always doing daily standups? Does it mean uh, having a certified scrum master? You know, 
nothing to do with those things. No, agile, being agile means that you can respond in time. Things are going to change. Can you respond in time? If you can, you're agile. If, if you're not, you're not. There are tools that in some situations can help that, and in other situations will hinder that ability to respond in time. So, yeah, it's not about do you use Pivotal Tracker or not? Do you, use, do, you do daily stand-ups? Do you uh, drink a certain kind of tea? Which is rooibos, by the way. <laughs> that's the uh, that's the T of agile developers, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but uh, no, I mean, look, people want to change without changing, and it's a very human thing to do. And you know, it's it's, just, it's not real; it doesn't actually work. But yeah, of course, people want to do that. So I'm not surprised. I mean, I didn't like the word agile from the meeting. Because I said, this is not, the, this is too attractive. Nobody's going to not want to be agile. So everybody's going to say they are, whether the reality is that or not, which makes the word meaningless. Okay. But I didn't, you know, the, the word I picked, extreme, <laughs> no, sure as hell nobody was going to pick up on that one. Because that one, that's too too uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, I think like the extreme programming uh, stuff in that book and everything that you talk about in that book uh, really had a massive impact on the way that, that I write software. And I mean, uh, I hate writing code by myself without working with a pair now, or I hate not having tests, or I hate working from a spec instead of sitting in the office with the, the customer at another desk or the product owner there in person so we can kind of figure this out as a team, like on a level playing field rather than having, you know, requirements dictated down and stuff like that. Um, I have found that some of that stuff is a little bit harder with the trend towards a remote work. So it'd be interesting to get your take on that, especially as someone who works remotely now yourself. Sure. I mean, the, the, the decision about location is a trade-off. I wasn't going to move, so I, if I was going to work at Facebook, I was going to work remotely. Uh, would I be more effective in some hypothetical universe where, where I lived in Menlo Park? Sure. Yeah, no question. If I had more face-to-face -face interactions with more diverse people, I would have more impact there. But that just wasn't going to happen. So I took the hit. I'm not pretending like oh, remote work's just as good as sitting face-to-face, because -face, it's not. But it might be the right decision. It might be, the, given the trade-offs that you have, yeah, it's fine. And I enjoy it, and I have a good time, but if I really want to get something really important done, I want to be sitting right with the person I'm doing it with. Yeah, for sure. So do you still do a lot of pair programming and stuff remotely? Yes, two, three hours a day. So what sort of tools and stuff are you using for that? I really like a tool called Screen Hero, which unfortunately has been purchased by Slack. Uh, it's the best screen sharing program around. I still get to use it grandfathered in because I was a user before, and I'll have to figure out how to sign up for Slack when the, when the time comes that I can no longer use it. But I, I really like, like that. Um, different people are of different opinions about uh, video. So audio, for sure, 
uh, pair programming with screen sharing and just just typing chat doesn't work for me, but talking does. I like having video, but it's, it's it also doesn't bother me. For some people, it kind of uh, destroys the illusion if they have that that you're sitting together if they have video and they can see that you're someplace else. So. Yeah, and that's kind of an interesting the way to look at it. I was kind of thinking the opposite, right? Where I guess you could kind of imagine if you don't have video and you just hear the person in your headphones or whatever, you can kind of pretend that they're sitting next to you. But if you can see them in like some other part of the, the world, then <laughs> that illusion kind of goes away. That's kind of an interesting thought. Right. Cool. Uh, the other thing I was going to ask you about with like all the extreme programming stuff. I mean, that book is like 16 years old now, something like that. 99, yeah. So with the way that the software industry has gone, uh, you know, in the last 16 years where a lot of the stuff that you talk about in that book has become a lot more commonplace, right? Like continuous integration and pair programming and testing and stuff like that, especially with all this web-based software where it's so easy to just deploy an update and everyone gets a copy of it right away versus, uh, you know, manufacturing a, a software on CDs or whatever. Is there anything that you would any opinions you have now based on how things have changed that you would add to those uh, principles that you outlined in that book or, or anything that you would emphasize differently or maybe anything that you would take away or just what are your thoughts on that now? If you were going to write that now, what would be different? Yeah. So my, uh, another of my thinking habits is I just go with my gut and try not to edit. And then sometimes I have to deal with fallout. So my gut reaction is I wouldn't write that book today. (laughs) So, but I don't, I I have no idea why, right? I just, that was the idea that the thought that popped into my head. So I wouldn't write that book today because I think it's because the, that idea of a, of an overarching, here's a whole bunch of practices all put together that has a bunch of uncomfortable side effects. So people will try to cargo cult and just do all the things and then they don't get the same results because they're not thinking. So I think like uh, Jez Humble's book on continuous deployment or, uh, you know, the TDD book or I I would do more, I would do more uh, pinpoint books like that. I guess what you're kind of saying, right, and I think this makes sense to me too, is there's this idea of a whole kind of collection of ideas or rules is kind of seductive to people and because they feel like they can just adopt these things and it's going to solve other problems and they, they don't have to think hard anymore. Right. They've been absolved from responsibility for those decisions. And it's not true. Right? That's not the reality of the situation. The reality of the situation is you're still fully responsible for both what you do and the and the outcomes of it. So I think I would focus more on now the the principles are going to be the same. Every book is going to have a section on principles and that section is going to be exactly the same. And it would be it would be a series of 100 page books on uh, deployment or uh, uh, operations or uh, large scale refactoring or whatever. And the values and the principles are exactly the same. The application within that little domain is going to be slightly different. If you hit people over the head with that enough times, they'll go, oh, well, these are the principles. That was one of the things that really surprised me about the XP book is everybody focused on the practices 
Some people got the values, but there's a chapter on principles in there. That's my bread and butter. That's my day today. I use those things all the time. And, and people who read the book closely didn't even know that that chapter existed. <laughs> I think the thing with the – it kind of goes back to what I was just saying, right? It's seductive to be able to just take on these practices. Like uh, they just want something prescriptive. And I think everyone, um, it's easy to get lured into taking these prescriptive things and just thinking that you can follow them. And I, I think that probably comes down to the same thing there. At one point, I was contacted by a group of people who would rent a space on a weekend, like a Saturday. They'd rent a, 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 an office space and they'd set up an XP team space. And they would copy the practices down to the letter all of them. And these weren't professional programmers. The people were like, this was like hobbyists. And, you know, uh, uh, liquor store owners, one guy I met. And it was, just seemed so bizarre to me. But that was their thing. You know, which is like, it seemed like the equivalent of, of putting on cowboy hats and string ties and playing bluegrass music. You know, just trying to copy note for note and not understanding that this music has a context and or that these practices have a context but you know if that's what somebody wants to do that as a hobby that's fine but that's not the same as professional programming i think you know with the extreme programming stuff when we talk about these principles and and, you know some of these ideas for implementing these principles in your team what i really got out of that stuff if i had to reduce it down to like one single important kind of principle or philosophy was that uh, everything is better if you can shrink your feedback loop to be as small as possible in every facet of what you're doing. So uh, pair programming is better than code review because the review happens faster and in smaller cycles. Um, you know, TDDing something, uh, following the proper red-green refactor cycle uh, lets you feel more productive than trying to you know, test stuff afterwards or trying to test big chunks of things. Or continuous delivery lets you get feedback from your customers faster than on like a multi-year cycle or whatever. Or having the product owner in the office where you can uh, you know, figure out how you want to solve certain problems in real time and shortening that feedback loop instead of even better than, you know, sending an email and waiting a couple hours to get a response. Like to me, that seems like kind of the guiding principle behind, behind almost all of it. Uh, do you think, did I get the right message out of that? Well, I don't know. That's the message you got. <laughs> do you agree with that? I would, I, I would say that's very similar to my, my outlook. It, and it's not just shorter because end to end is further than you think. It's also incorporating more and more feedback in a shorter and shorter cycle and and then being able to do something about it like reacting in that cycle so the plan do check act cycle or uh, you know the d- different people have different different ways of of uh cutting it apart but if you continually shrink that cycle by 20% every quarter you're going to end up with something that looks a lot like extreme programming eventually. Very cool. So one last question before we get going. What are you excited about these days? What's keeping you interested in programming? So one of the things that I have learned at Facebook is this focus on data. And I still care a lot about software engineering in the large, but I have 
a captive audience of 2,000 really good programmers and extraordinary tools and really good collaborators for applying those tools. So something I I recently collected all of the all of the data oriented papers that I uh, that I'd written in four years at Facebook, and I have I have most of a book there. I think applying quantitative methods to software engineering, that's to me is endlessly fascinating because you find stuff that you just would never, you know, the rational, no rational programmer would behave this way, except of course we're not rational. So uh, uh, to me, that's a, that's a really endlessly fascinating subject. Do you have an example of anything uh, interesting that you've discovered through that? Well, I, I get, I find lots of power law distributions, these distributions with lots and lots of very small samples and a few ginormous samples that m- most things in software engineering don't, don't follow uh, a normal distribution. It's not like there are five lines per, per method, plus or minus a few. No, there's lots of really short methods, lots of really short methods, and then there's going to be one whopper in your system that's thousands and thousands of lines long. And no book you read is going to say that's how you should, but if you measure system after system after system, that's, that's the distribution that comes out. So, and those, those power law distributions show up all over the place. The, the run times of test cases, you'll have lots of really fast test cases and one test case that takes a really long time to run or, or the cyclomatic complexity or the size of methods or the size of classes and the number of comments on diffs and blah, 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 just all kinds of things. These, these power laws pop up everywhere. And that's, to me, that's just endlessly fascinating because it's not at all what anybody's theory would say you should do, but it's what we all do. Yeah, that is pretty interesting. So that kind of comes back to something you mentioned earlier, right? Where you're talking about, uh, you know, maybe this idea that, you know, what we should do is this way. Maybe we have what we should do wrong, or maybe there's some other factor in it completely that we haven't, you know, discovered yet or thought about. Right. It's, it's as if there is some force that is influencing the decisions we make and we're completely unaware of that force. Yeah. It is pretty fascinating when you think about it that way, for sure. Are you still, uh, are you still, planning on you know writing at all or anything in the future any more books we can look forward to from kent beck i write a fair amount um i have a few i would love to write a a book on software design it's hard to sit down and write a book now the the economics are uh growing ever ever worse as a book writer like I have plenty of thoughts for something like that. An update, really what I want to do is an update of the, of the structured design book that introduced the terms coupling and cohesion. Because I think, I think that's a book that really needs to be written and read and applied. But I don't have a schedule for doing it. I don't have a way of funding it that makes any sense to me. Writing a book is so painful that there's no way I'm going to do it just for fun because it's not fun. So, you know, they're the ones out there and, you know, if somebody knows what, uh, what publishing 2.0 2. 2. 
looks like that makes sense for authors, please let me know. Yeah, I mean, you know, you were talking about uh, if, if if you were to write extreme programming again today, it would be a dozen or so shorter books. Maybe maybe a small eighty page ebooks is a is a thing. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But do, who's going to pay for them? I, I, I had actually. I will pay for anything. <laughs> well, that thank you. Write. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. I, I had a. Re- I did this series of uh, screencasts. Yeah. I, for the yep. pragmatic program. I actually just bought those probably six months ago. And th- they did surprisingly well. I was really pleased with, with how that went. So um, There's a lot of people who make a living like recording uh, programming screencasts. So it's, it's definitely a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I may, I may have to think about it a little bit more. But uh, yeah, it's just uh, writing a, a whole book is, is pretty painful. So. Pretty daunting task, I guess. Yeah, it's just a lot of typing. <laughs> I mean, fundamentally, you're going to spend a thousand hours sitting in front of a word processor. So, you know, after after one hour of that, you'll have 999 to go. That's just that's just the realities of book writing. So it's not, like it's uh, daunting. I'm not afraid of it. It's just like, oh, <laughs> it's just a big investment, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay, man. Well, uh, maybe now's a good time to to get going, let you get back to what you're doing. But um, it's been absolutely a wonderful opportunity to be able to talk to you. Uh, You're one of the most influential programmers in my career, like I've said before, and probably someone I honestly never expected to get a chance to talk to if I hadn't started this podcast. So really, really, really appreciative of you taking the time to talk to me. Oh, it's it's my pleasure. I never expected to be able to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Adam. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Kent. Um, before we go, I guess is the what's the best way for people to keep up with uh, what you're doing, or um, you know, I know you have like uh, you you write a lot of blog posts on your Facebook page, for example. Is there any other places where people can keep up with what's going on? Yeah, follow me on Facebook, um, facebook.com slash Kent L. Beck or at Kent Beck on Twitter. Awesome. Uh, so show notes for this episode are going to be found at fullstackradio.com slash episodes slash 16. If you uh, want to talk about what me and Kent talked about today, there's a discussion that you can join in on the website. And if you have ideas for guests or topics, let me know. Uh, if you can rate and review the show on iTunes, that really helps uh, people discover us and and you know hear these interviews that I'm doing with people. And uh, yeah, so that'll be it. See you next time, guys. Thanks.